The gospel of Mark is considered what we call a synoptic gospel, which means similar to. And the Bible says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact is established. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke give an eyewitness account, very similar but different, exactly as you would expect. If you were a witness to a car wreck, and a police officer came up and asked three guys, and they said identically the same thing. What would he think? <laughs> Something's up here. But if one's a doctor, and he starts describing from a doctor's point of view the accident, and one's a lawyer, he describes from a legal point of view uh, the wreck, and another guy is a car mechanic, and he's describing from his point of view the wreck, it would be similar but different. Some things completely missed. Other things very detailed on. And this is what we have in the Gospels. And you say, well, I'm going through the list. Matthew, yeah, 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 he, he was, uh, but, but who was Mark? Was he an apostle? No, he wasn't. A matter of fact, Mark uh, was a follower of Peter. And it is believed that Mark wrote down Peter's point of view, and it is actually the gospel of Peter written after Peter's death by his disciple, Mark. Justin Martyr writes, he lived between 100 and 165 AD. He referred to Mark's gospel actually as the memoirs of Peter. But he says this, the Mark that many early church fathers tell us about is the Mark who accompanied Peter, heard his preaching in Rome, interpreted Peter's words, and wrote the gospel primarily based on Peter's testimony. Another early church father, Papias, says this. Um, he was a disciple of the apostle John, and he said that Mark, who became Peter's interpreter, wrote accurately Though not in order, all he remembered of the things said and done by the Lord. Irenaeus wrote this. Mark, the disciple, the interpreter of Peter, also gave forth to us the writings, the things which were preached by Peter. And then Clement of Alexander, Eusebius, Origins, Rome, a number of others uh, state this same fact. So if you would, the gospel of Mark is Peter's gospel. However, if you look at the gospels, they all have a unique thing. Matthew is writing to the Jews. And so when you look at his gospel, there's all kinds of Jewish things that if a Gentile reading it wouldn't understand unless somebody taught him and explained it. So when we go through the gospel of Matthew, we have to break all these Jewish things down. Luke was trying to write a gospel to the world that nothing was left out. But Mark writes particularly to the Gentile audience of specifically the Romans of this time. And, uh, and so you see very little Jewishness in it. A matter of fact, um, the couple of times he does have something Jewish in it, he explains it. Many times when he has a chance to write a word in Greek, he actually 
writes it in the Latin root. And so uh, there's some unique things. But Mark, relationally, we, we hear about this guy when Peter's in prison. And remember, the angel comes in Rome, or Acts chapter 12 and says, Peter, get up. And he walks out of prison. Well, he goes straight to John Mark's house. Because there, his mother Mary was having a prayer meeting for the release of Peter. And when Peter showed up and knocked on the door, a, a, a servant came to the door and said, it's Peter. And they're going, no, 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 you're nuts. Peter's in prison. Let's keep praying for his release. <laughs> and finally, she convinced him to go, and Peter had been released. That was John Mark's house. We learn in Colossians 4, 10, that he is actually the cousin to Barnabas. Remember, in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas were called by the Holy Spirit to go out and to, to be apostles and to preach the gospel where it had not been preached before. Well, because of his relationship, Barnabas says to Paul, hey, on our first missionary journey, let's take my nephew Mark with us. But it did not go well. I don't know what happened lot of speculation. Some say Mark missed his mommy. Some said he missed his girlfriend. Some said that he was too uptight as a Jew and that he was quenching, reaching the Gentiles, which does make sense because after this, he went and was under the discipleship of Peter, whose ministry was to the Jews that were scattered abroad. But either way, Paul and Barnabas uh, had strong words in Acts 15 when they, when they were ready to go on their second missionary journey. And, and Barnabas said to Paul, uh, if you don't take Mark, we're over as a team. And Paul said, well, we're over as a team. And Paul took Silas and Barnabas took Mark. And if you would, the video camera never lands on Barnabas or Mark again. The video camera follows the Apostle Paul. So we can take from that that, um, that Barnabas was not the called as Paul was, that uh, he should have relented. Barnabas should have relented and, and gone along with what Paul was doing. But Barnabas was a wonderful man of encouragement, but he was wrong at this point. But what do we do know is Paul later writes after some years that whatever Mark was wrestling through at that time and not good to be with Barnabas and Paul, it, he grew out of it. Because later on in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul's last letter, he writes, bring Mark with you for he is useful to the ministry for me. And then in, when he's writing from Rome to Philemon, uh, he writes to him and says, hey, Mark is here who is also named as one of his fellow laborers. But church history says in 1 Peter 5.13, it sinuates that Mark became Peter's son in the faith, like Timothy was to Paul. Well, Mark became a solid evangelist to the Gentile world. And a matter of fact, still as a, a young man, he went to Egypt and was preaching against their false gods. And in A.D. 68, um, they martyred him putting, tying him behind horses and dragging him through the streets of Alexandria till he died. A unique thing in the Gospel of Mark that we don't have in any other gospel 
is a story in Mark 14, verse 51 to 52, where Mark says there was a young man, doesn't give his name, that was there when Jesus was being arrested, and the soldiers started gathering everybody up that was around Jesus to arrest them as well, and they grabbed this young guy who was in his nighttime sheet. He jumped out of bed and ran down to see what's going on in his blanket. <laughs> and the guy goes to grab this young man, and he has to let go of his blanket and ran away, ran away naked to not be arrested. And uh, tradition has it that this was Mark telling you, um, I was a young boy. We don't know how old he was. Junior high, high school, we don't know. But uh, he was there. <laughs> that that he, he was very much in tune what was going on with Jesus at the time of his crucifixion. The one unique thing we're going to see about the Gospel of Mark is this word immediately. In the Greek, the actual Greek words used 42 times, but here it's going to be translated 36 times. It's showing that the Gospel of Mark is about power and about action. And a matter of fact, we find that 18 of Christ's 70 parables are only 18 of them, of the 70 parables are in the Gospel of Mark. However, a half of Jesus' miracles, of Jesus' 35 miracles are in the Gospel of Mark. So there's power, there's action constantly. It's almost as if Mark is the photographer. He's just taking a bunch of snapshots and he's now saying, look at this picture. Okay, now look at this picture. Now look at this picture. Now look at this picture. And it's not focusing on much as what Jesus said as as much as what Jesus did. So uniquely in this gospel, there's no genealogy of Christ. There's no fulfilled prophecy. There's no reference to the law. There's no reference to Jewish customs. Um, and it's interpreted in the Aramaic words, and as a matter of fact, it uses Latin terms in place of Greek equivalent words. And so we find that this is indeed a book of, to the Gentiles about the power and the actions of Christ proving who he was. You guys like trivia? Here's an interesting trivia point. The very middle verse of the Gospel of Mark is chapter 8, verse 27. And this is the verse, who do men say that I am? Very, very fitting, because that's the very thing Mark sets out to do. I'll tell you why I like the Gospel of Mark. Because we can go through this in just a few months. When you teach through the Gospel of Matthew, you start off with the life of Jesus, but you don't get to the end, to the crucifixion of Christ, for at least a couple of years. The Gospel of Luke, more like three and a half years, if you're teaching every part of it. They're very long. But the Gospel of Mark, it's a very short Gospel, so within a few months we'll go from the beginning of Jesus' ministry and see the work of Christ on the cross. Well, let's start off here. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Boy, I'll tell you what. The gospel of Mark chapter 1, I use often in debating cults. Because there's some powerful doctrine 
in this one little chapter. And of course, we see right from the beginning, action. Eight times, the word immediately will be used in this first chapter of the 42 times um, in the Gospel of Mark. In the beginning. This is the second time in the Bible we see this. You know the first one, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now for a second time, we see it. In the beginning, the good news. Once again, not of creation, but of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he tells us it's good news. Understand that if you understand Christianity, you understand it as good news. Now, when I grew up in church, the focus was on man and what you need to do for God. Now, that's definitely in the Bible. We do need to exhort one another to love and good works. A good pastor will rebuke and warn and chasten if you teach through the Bible correctly. And of course, when you point one finger at somebody else, you're pointing what? <laughs> Believe me, when I have to teach on a convicting passage, especially on the marriage passages, um, I'm, I'm up here broken going, uh, uh, who am I? Get somebody else to teach this. I'm such a loser. Um, I'm the last guy to tell you how to do it right as a Christian, you know? Um, so it's never out of uh, self-righteousness. It's always out of a love and a care. And... But understand, if Christianity's taught right, it's all about what God has done for you. And, and when you understand that, then God says, now, <laughs> understanding all of my love for you and all that I'm giving to you and all that I'm doing for you and how much I care for you and how much I have joy in you, now respond. If true faith is in your heart, you will respond with good works, right? I mean, if a guy came and said, you know what, I won the lottery and I'm writing you a check, you've been a good friend to me, for a million dollars. And you're going, whoa, this is incredible. And you go down and you cash that check, it's in your bank. And then he shows up the next day at your house and says, wow, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great, thanks for the million dollars yesterday. Man, before we start talking, would you get me a glass of water? I'm really thirsty. Oh, <laughs> I just sat down too. I've had a long day. Why are you asking me? Would, you, is that, would that be your attitude to a guy who gave you a million dollars the day before? Or you're going, glass of water? I'll give you one of my Cokes, you know? <laughs> I'll go down to the supermarket and buy you your favorite kind of water. What is it? I mean, do you understand? This is Christianity. And so we say, we remind one another, Christ loved us. He died for us. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. The Lord stands over you singing, rejoicing. Now seek him in the word. Now put him first in your life. Now tell others about his goodness. Do you, do you understand? This is Christianity. It, it's a gospel. It's joyful. But yet, in the religion I grew up in, a Christian church, it was always man trying to motivate man. 
I spoke last week on that passage where David says, you know, how can I worship God with that which cost me nothing? And, and he paid for the land and for the sacrifice. And that was a time to say, hey, guys, if you're responding to Christ properly, you're, you're giving in every way the best to God, right? But again, it's got to be understood. And if you've been with us through the life of David, you've been pounded over and over again of God's mercy and grace and love and goodness. And hopefully it was declared David out of the joy and worship of his heart was saying, ah, I can't give enough. I want to give more. And, and that is Christianity. And so if you simply hear whatever you're doing, you're not doing enough for God. <laughs> You're reading a chapter of the Bible, you're not really being a good Christian until you're reading two chapters of the Bible. And so you're always under this burden. That's the way I grew up. I was just never satisfying God. I was never pleasing God. I was failing every day. I wanted, I said in my heart things I don't want to do. I don't want to do, but then I did them and I felt like a failure again. And, and when I thought about Jesus, I just thought about failing him. When I worked to church, it was about whatever you did, it wasn't enough. <laughs> and, and if you failed, you need to get saved again. I got saved every Sunday. I helped the stats in that church. It, it was showing like 3,000 people a year got saved at that church, but it was me repeatedly. <laughs> and so when then the message came, now go into the world and preach the gospel, I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to put this black cloud on anybody else. I do love man. So the last thing I want to tell him about is Christianity because it's such a burden. It's such a heavy thing. I just, it's, you can never really satisfy God. And you're always failing and he's always disappointed. That was what I understood. But then I came to Calvary Chapel Ray Bentley was teaching, as he was the pastor of Horizon at that time, the, gospel, or the book of Romans. And I got grace. And I understood now it's not of my works, but it's of God's grace that I'm accepted in the beloved, that he's predestined me before the foundation of the world and already seen me seated with him in heavenly places and that he has great joy in me and that I will struggle every day until the day I die with this old flesh. But it's okay. Not that I say oh, it's no big deal that I sin. It's always a big deal when you sin because you're going to reap what you sow. And, and, and so we don't want to take lightly. We want to say one another, don't sin because life is real. And it's painful. And you're planting a seed you may not see grow for a few years, but when it grows, it's going to be a cactus poking you. But at the same time, we say, but if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who's already paid for your sins in advance 2,000 years ago on the cross. It's already been paid for. He's not surprised by it. He's not worried about it. He's not disappointed in you. He's not bummed about you. But as a father pities his child, so the Lord pities you. And he loves you. 
and he cares for you. And the righteous man falls seven times, still called a righteous man. Well, after the fifth time, we're not calling you righteous anymore. Nope. Seven is the number of completion. Even after seven times of falling, you get up because of God's grace, his love, his mercy, where he, he constantly is saying, where your sin abounds, my grace will abound more. And so now, when I think of coming to Christ, I think joyfully of coming into the throne of grace and to get grace and mercy to help me in my time of need. And I see Jesus smiling at me and him saying, I am your husband. You as the church are my bride, and I am washing you even in your sleep. <laughs> my blood is washing over you, making you clean without spot, without blemish. But God, I didn't ask enough. You don't even have to ask at all. I take that responsibility, he says in Ephesians 5. As your husband to wash you with the water of the word, I'm taking the responsibility to make sure you're without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle, standing before the Father equal in righteousness as I am righteous. You will have the same exact white wedding dress as I will have in my whiteness of, I guess, wedding suit. I don't know. <laughs> this analogy is breaking down here. But either way, we're equal in righteousness to Christ when we stand before him. It's not going to be going, well, Jesus, you're, of course, you're the son of God. You, you were tempted in all ways, but you didn't sin, and you are truly righteous. And Brian, we need to, you know, work on that a little bit. No. And you're going to say, well, Brian, it's because you live such a holy life. No. There's no sin that's not common to all men. Why am I standing in perfect righteousness, looking equal to Jesus in righteousness? Because he loves us. Because he died on the cross and paid hell for us. He was punished. He was bruised. He was crucified. The chastisement of our well-being fell upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We are healed from our sinful weakness right this second and tomorrow and the next day. Faithful is he who called you and he will bring it to pass. He who began that good work, he will complete it. So when our spirit's grieving because we've sinned, it's not a condemnation. It's just God saying, I got better things for you. <laughs> It's like a little child going out in the front yard and curious about the dog poop, wanting to fill it and put their fingers, and you took your eye off a minute, and they're over there like Play-Doh playing with the dog poop. And they're smearing it on their leg and putting it on their face, and it smells a little weird, but it, oh, the texture, I love it, you know? And there's all these toys that you bought all around them. <laughs> What are you going to do to that? They're going to be crying in a minute, aren't they? You're going to swat that hand, and you're going to go wash them up, and you're going to say, don't ever do that again. Do you know how many diseases are in that thing? You put your finger in your mouth. Oh, your mouth smells like poop now. Ah. You're, going to, you're just going to say, this can't exist. And so we're going to sense that grieving of God's spirit, not to condemn you, to say, you worm. You sinner, why did I ever even choose you? Yuck, 
You're going to be the least in heaven. You're going to go live in the ghetto. No. There's no good Christians and bad Christians. We're all equally his children. However, there are weak Christians and strong Christians. And our heart, if God's spirit lives in us and we're truly born again, is saying, God, I want a bit living for you every second, every moment, every year. I'm thinking 20 years from now, if you tarry, Lord, just to be more knowledgeable of your word, having had led 100 people and discipled 100 people in Christ and to see them now as Sunday school teachers and worship leaders and as missionaries. And, and many of us have done this many times over. I was talking to our missionary in England and Harrogate, Mike Howard, and I, I remember wrestling with him, coming to Christ. He came to church with a friend, and, and he was a hard catch. He just was wrestling with intellectually with a number of things and then coming to faith in Christ and, and became a wonderful worship leader and a missionary in Hungary for him, a missionary in Hungary for him many years, and, and now has a church in Harrogate, England. And it, it's, it's, there's no greater joy, even greater than having your own babies born into your family is leading somebody to a born-again life. The beginning of good news starts with Jesus. Do we got it? Creation in the beginning, the angel saying, Job said, let there be light, the beauty of land, the beauty of all the created things. To see all the beauty of flowers and different birds and different animals. Ah, oh, the oceans teeming with all the different life, untouched by sin. What a joyful beginning that was. Well, sin entered the world. <laughs> now there's only one way for a new heaven and a new earth. One day all this is going to melt with the fervent heat. And that is one way, and that's through the salvation of Jesus. Now, you might say, well, right there, I have a problem with that. One way. That seems a little seclusive. That doesn't seem very friendly. Well, understand, if Jesus isn't the only way, then Christianity you have to chalk it up as an evil, wicked religion. You say, well, how is that? Well, let's get it here. Jesus in the garden said, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass, let it be, but not my will, your will be done. And, and there was the rhetorical, no, there is no other way. God gave his son his only begotten son into human flesh, a man acquainted with grief and sorrow, his whole life tempted and tried and, and, and then finally beaten, black and blue. He no longer looked human, nailed to a cross and torturously died. And then Jesus raised from the dead going, now man can come to heaven with us. They can be forgiven of their sins. I paid for their sins. And the father says, well, actually, Jesus, I didn't want to, tell you ahead of time, my son, I love you, and it was awesome you sacrificing yourself, but actually you're the 700th way now to go to heaven. People can just be sincere. And then you got Buddha and Allah and Confucius and good works, and you know, you're, 
Okay, understand what this makes Jesus. It makes him a doof. What's it make the Father? Evil. Do you understand this? If you see a drunk in the street in an oncoming car, <laughs> and you grab your child and you throw it into the drunk and knock him out of the way, and your child's killed, and everybody's standing around going, that guy never would have got hit by that car. What are you doing? What's that make you? A hero? Well, I was a hero. I saved that guy. No, you murdered your son. That's what you did. Do you understand? If, if God gave his son, knowing that there were many other ways to be saved, then, then God is evil. Because any father that loves his child is not going to see him suffer and be tortured when there is another way. And Jesus fully believed he was the only way. It makes him a doof. So Christianity, if, if Jesus is the only way, then it makes Christianity the most beautiful religion in the world. If Jesus is not the only way, it makes God the Father evil. It makes Jesus stupid. And as, as Paul said, the surrender of life that God expects to deny everything in this world and to follow him. Paul said, if there is no resurrection from the dead, if, if the story of Jesus isn't true, then go eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's vanity, it's emptiness. There is no reality in it. But the fact is, is Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. And this is the beginning of the good news. The word Jesus is his name. In the Hebrew, it's Yahshua, which means God is salvation. Christ is the Hebrew, is Messiah is the way we transliterate it. Jesus and Christ are the Greek transliterations. A translation is where you have the word car and you translate it into Spanish auto. That's a translation. But if you have something that you don't have and you can't, there is no word for it, then you have to transliterate it. So you go to the Hebrew and say, well, that looks like the letter D. Okay, I'll put that there. That looks sort of like an I. Okay, I'll put that there. And so Jesus and Christ are doing the transliteration from the Greek. So it's Jesus is a Greek enunciation. Christ is the Greek. But if you were to say it in Hebrew, it would be Yahshua. If you were to say it in English, it's Joshua. If you say it in Spanish, it's Jesus. Christ, if you say it in the Greek transliteration, but in the Hebrew, it would be transliterated Messiah, which means the anointed one of God, that he is the one God sent that God might save us. And he is the son of God. So we have the name Jesus. We have the title Christ. We have now the position. He is the son of God. Jesus God Almighty, the second person of the Trinity, 100% God, came into human flesh. If I could open up my body right now and you could see my spirit, you would see it's the same age as my body. Both created in 1960. But if you could have taken Jesus' flesh and opened it up, you would have been vaporized because <laughs> no man can see God and live. It was the eternal God coming into human flesh. 
Hebrews tells us, so he had to be 100% man so he could be our substitute, but he had to be 100% God. So everything God, everything that Jesus did in human flesh was eternal. So he could be the substitute for all men for all times. Well, in verse 2 there, it's written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So he just jumps right in to this prophet, the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. And he quotes from two passages, from Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 40, verse 3. And taking from these passages, he says, before the Messiah comes, there is going to be a prophet, as you read Malachi 3 and Malachi 4, the last book of our Old Testament, it says before the coming of the Messiah, he'll have a forerunner who comes very much in the spirit and the power of Elijah. It looks like Elijah. And... Um, so this is what the people were looking for. So if you look at the end of the Old Testament, the people were unwilling to sacrifice. Going up to the temple, they were complaining about it. Got to walk all the way up there. I got to give my tithes. I got to give a sacrifice. I've got to do, you know, and finally God said, stop. I don't want it. I don't take it. Even if you bring your offering, I won't receive it because you're not bringing the first to me. You're bringing the blind and the lame and the, and the, the diseased and saying, here, we're just going to burn it anyway. Just give God this. And the priests were willing to accept it. And God says, you, know, you don't have the heart in this at all. And there's 400 years of silence. The next voice we have after 400 years of silence is that of John the Baptist saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, if you remember in Luke chapter 1, Verse 13 to 17, his dad, Zacharias, was a Levite of the priestly line. And it was his turn to go and minister in the temple. And he's, he's in the temple, he's praying, and, he, and the angel came and said to him in Luke chapter 1, verse 13, Don't be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of God to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient of the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So this guy who comes is going to be anointed. He's going to be powerful. So John the Baptist was born to do very elderly people. So they probably didn't live long. So probably John the Baptist, as a young boy, had no more family. He was the only child. And we know, as a very young man, unstained by the world, having grown up and seen the temple and seen what's going on in the priesthood and the whole Pharisaical system that was so grievous to Jesus and so anti-Jesus, that he goes into the wilderness. The wilderness is the desert, guys. <laughs> 
east of Israel, it was just a desert. And John was out there in that desert and walking by faith. And he was a unique guy. Um, and it says there that after, when he begins coming and, and ministering, he, he declares that you need to prepare your way as if you were preparing the way for a king. In those days when the king was going to travel, they would cut trees back and bushes back and straighten out the road and make sure there's no holes and so that's a safe way so the people can't ambush the king and also people can come out to celebrate the king. So John the Baptist said, spiritually, I'm here getting the path smooth so when the Messiah comes, um, you're ready for him. Your heart, spiritually, are ready for him. And John the Baptist came baptizing in the wilderness, preaching baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So John came, and, and he was saying, he was doing this crazy thing, the baptism. Now, Jews had baptisms like this. Okay, they had misphas. That's a ceremonial baptizing you do yourself before you go into the temple. That's different. This was for Gentiles wanting to become Jews and convert to Judaism. They would have a baptism where they dunked them underwater. So John the Baptist comes out of the wilderness and he's telling all the Jews, <laughs> you've got to humble yourself, repent of your sins, confess you're a sinner, and let me baptize you. I am a Levite. I am a, of the priesthood. My father, Zacharias, was a very well-known priest. And I am going to baptize you as one would baptize a Gentile into Judaism. You Jews come, and I'll baptize you in that way. Do you understand how humiliating and humbling that would be for a Jew? But God's Holy Spirit was powerfully upon John Baptist. And when people came, they immediately were deeply convicted about their sinful condition being next to John the Baptist, this consecrated guy who was set apart for the Lord and, and the Holy Spirit would come upon them in a great conviction of their sin. And he would say, repent, which is humble your heart and, and, and confess. It literally means to, to turn around and go the opposite direction, to confess it. And notice in verse 5, all of Judea, those from Jerusalem. So he's going out to the poor. He's going out to people. We're going to find Gentiles. Even the Roman soldiers are coming to him, which was, wasn't a problem because that was the baptism for Gentiles as well. But the people in Jerusalem, the rich, the famous, the religious people were coming out and they were equally convicted. Later, when the Pharisees wanted to be baptized to say, well, I was a part of that. Now keep being a part of our Pharisee system because John the Baptist was a part of our Pharisee system. They tried to do that. And John said, I won't baptize you till you bring forth fruits of repentance. I, I don't bear witness that you're really repenting here. I think you're just trying to gain the people's favor by allowing this to happen. But then they noticed, went out to him, were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, 
confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. So let's just take this picture here. John the Baptist was the opposite of seeker-friendly. In these last 20 years of Christendom in America, they tell you, you need to paint things this color. You need to have this kind of seats. You need to have the stage with multi-lights and smoke, and, and, and you need to try to make, you know, everybody's going to come to you, and you've got to cater to everybody's wants and needs, you know? One church actually had Disney characters meeting the kids in the park, taking them off to the Sunday school. And you need to have worship like this, and you need to have your worship leaders, you know, with long hair and cool looking, and, you know, they're jazzing along, and you got this beautiful girl on stage, and she's ripping notes and, you know... And, and there's all this pressure. I, I remember going through, you've got to have a Starbucks in your church or at least a coffee. And then it was the bookstore. And then it was, it's always something. I didn't jump on those bandwagons. But there was just such a tremendous pressure. And I'd go to pastor's conference and pressure's just like, I need to be skinnier and I need to look cool and I need to look younger and, and, and I need to get a guitar player that's, you know, looks like he just came off the stage in Las Vegas, and I need, you know, and, you know, people won't come unless you have this beautiful picture of, of coolness. John the Baptist, his hair was probably all matted back, not getting washed very well. There's not a lot of water out there. The Jordan River was filthy. It was not a river that you really wanted to get in. He had a piece of garment he found from, from making it from a camel skin, probably like burlap sack, found a piece of leather that fell off somebody's strap, tied that around himself as a belt. He just ate bugs. You say, well, that, that's not true. Yeah, it's in Leviticus 11, 22 and 23. It, the Bible says, yeah, you can eat bugs. You can eat locusts of its kind, destroying locusts, crickets, um, grasshoppers, and other kind of flying insects. These are all clean, the Bible says. And then, of course, he had a sweet tooth. He had his honey. But he had not been in front of a mirror <laughs> probably a couple of decades. We know if we do the math, he was born at the same time of Christ, just a few months before Jesus. Jesus was 30, and he had been, he had been doing this for about three years. So probably around 27 years old, he started. And he's out there in the burning heat, away from every comfort possible, you're going out and you're looking at this strange dude. Hasn't looked at a mirror in years and everything's out of control on this guy. And you're trying to make sense of his garb. He's, he's like, excuse me there, sir, can you hand me that cricket? Oh, thank you. I'm hungry. There was nothing seeker-friendly about this. There was nothing comfortable. You say, well, he was a powerful guy. The Bible points out John did no miracles. He only came with the word of God. But yet, we often think, well, I need to try to present the gospel this way. I need to try to be clever this way. I need to try to be seeker-friendly this way. I need to... No, guys. When God's spirit's moving, you can have your hair messed up. You can have things as raw and difficult out in the middle of nowhere 
and God's spirit will fall and move. And that is what we are desiring. The move of God in that way. And as he was preaching, there came one after him. He says, one's coming after me mightier than I, whose sandal strap is not worthy to stoop down and loose. Indeed, I baptize you with water, but you, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist came on and he said, repent, you're sinners. You need to be converted as if you were a Gentile and, 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 and you're getting converted to Judaism and I don't care if you're a Jew and, and, and you need to, I'm going to dunk you underwater and as you come up, you need to be confessing your sins. I'm a thief, I'm a liar, I'm an adulterer, I'm a, I'm a wicked man. Okay, now go to the other side of the Jordan. <laughs> and he said, okay guys, everybody that just got baptized, I'm going to stop here a minute. The Messiah is coming, and he's coming any day. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up, and John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus comes into the water to be baptized by him, and he says, No, 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 let me baptize. You baptize me. And he said, Permitted at this time. And he was baptized, and he, and he says, here in verse 9, it came to pass in those days when Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, he was baptized by John in the Jordan, and immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens parting, and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove, and the voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You say, well, why was Jesus being baptized if he had no sin? He was doing it in our place. Jesus is our substitute. Jesus at this time was bearing our sinful condition in a mystery, in a spiritual way. He was becoming sin for us that we could become the righteousness of God. And, and I, I love this. So John is doing his ministry for, I don't know, a year, a year and a half. The Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. And then Jesus shows up. He's saying, repent and it's Jesus now. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus says of all men, there's none greater than John the Baptist. There's never been a prophet greater. There's never been a man greater. Why? Because he was the first one to say repent. And Jesus is the way of salvation. Probably the last year, year and a half of his ministry, he's saying, I'll tell you who the Messiah is. It's Jesus. He's down in Galilee right now preaching. Great miracles are happening through him. John told his guys who were following John, quit following me. Go follow Jesus. In the book of Acts, it's, Peter says, all of us apostles were also followers of John the Baptist. And John said, I must decrease that he must increase. Go follow him from now on. He is the one I spoke of whose sandal I'm not even worthy to untie, be the least servant to him. I'm not even worthy of that. And Jesus came out of the waters of baptism. The dove came upon him. And what a beautiful thing. The father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What an awesome thing. One day we are going to hear from God. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my kingdom. I do think it's interesting, however, that John simply had a simple message. Repent, 
Now that you're a sinner, you need a savior. Jesus is the savior. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except this, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, and him crucified, the work of bringing salvation. I determined to not let your faith rest in anything other than to focus on Jesus and the work of the cross. And that's where we need to come today. And as we're here this morning, you may be here right now and God's Spirit's coming upon you and you're convicted of your sin. Good news. Jesus already paid for the penalty of your sin. You just need to collect it by faith. Jesus is there. It's in an account for you. I've already paid for it. Now you just need to collect it by faith, saying, I surrender my life to you, God. From this point forward, I'm going to live for you who died and rose again, that I would no longer live for myself, but for you. And you as a believer here today, to come back and just say, Lord, give me the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to be a John the Baptist. I want to be one just teaching Christ. Repent, Jesus, the cross. That's simple. It's a powerful thing. I want to lead people to you and then disciple them. How just read the gospel of whatever, Mark, and I'll tell you about it. Come Sunday morning, we're preaching on it. Follow Jesus. It's a powerful thing when you say to somebody, come and follow Jesus. You can do it. And this is a time. And so we're going to have a time of worship and we're going to receive of communion this morning. And as we do that, this is a time just to say, Lord, as I come to that bread, Lord, I'm breaking that body. Lord, you said on the cross, it's finished. By your stripes, I'd be healed. Lord, I want to be healed from whatever fleshliness, whatever carnalness, whatever sins and weights are causing you to struggle. Lord, I want to walk in a manner worthy of you. I want to remember joyfully the work of the cross and all that you've done for me. And then as you take the cup, Lord, I, I, I know that my sins have been forgiven, are being forgiven, will be forgiven.